to your Bibles, if you want to open up the page that we're going to be reading from, it's from Romans chapter 2 and the first 16 verses. Romans 2, 1 to 16. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Let's pray. Father, as we again turn to your words this morning, we pray for enlightenment. We pray that you'll speak to us and help us to listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure many of you will have uh, come across J. John, the uh, evangelist and author. He's pretty well known. Uh, I guess most of you will have come across him if you've watched the DVD series on the Ten Commandments that he's produced. I know some of you have been looking at that in recent months in, in small groups, and John's been introducing it on Sunday evenings once a month. J. John is, is, is well known for his quips, his stories, and his jokes. 
And uh, one of his jokes goes something like this. There was once a man who was convinced that his wife was having uh, an adulterous affair with another man. And he was so concerned about this that he decided one day while he was at work that he would leave work during the course of the day and go back to his home in the anticipation that he would catch them together. So he did that. He parked his car just around the corner and went to his home, which happened to be on the fourth floor of an apartment block. He went in, came up to his front door, put the key in the door, and immediately opened it. There was this smell of cigar smoke. He knew it wasn't his because he didn't smoke cigars. He went in, furious. He went from room to room. His wife was sitting on the settee, alone, watching daytime TV. Uh, He went from room to room, he opened doors, he opened cupboards, he opened wardrobes, no sign of anybody else in the apartment. He went over to the window and looked outside and just as he was peering out into the ground below, he saw a man quickly getting into his car that was parked right underneath the window. Furious, he grabbed hold of the nearest thing that he could find, which happened to be the fridge, which was right next to the window. With superhuman strength, he got hold of the fridge, lifted it up onto the window ledge, and pushed it out of the window so that it would hurtle down to the ground before below. The problem was that the cord with the plug on got wrapped around his ankle and took him with it. So both fridge and husband crashed into the roof of this car. End of Act 1. Act 2, the gates of heaven. The husband stands at the gates and is greeted by St. Peter. But he's not alone. There are two other men with him. So Peter says to him, okay, that was a bit of a daft thing to do, wasn't it? Explain yourself. And he said, yeah, I know, but you know, I just loved my wife and I just wanted to save my marriage. Peter said, yeah. I think we understand, you know, that sense of betrayal. Just stay there a minute. I'll come back to you in a minute. So Peter turned to the second man and said, okay, what happened to you? He said, well, I was on my way to visit my mother in hospital. And I stopped and I called in at the local florist to buy some flowers. And I got into the car and suddenly this fridge just came crashing down on the roof of my car. St. Peter said, oh, dear, dear, dear. Yeah, we understand that. Innocent victim bystander. And so Peter turned to the third person and said, Now, okay, can you just tell me, what on earth were you doing inside that fridge? (laughs) We laugh, but there is a serious point to that story. And the serious point is that there is a real danger of us acting as judge and jury taking the law into our own hands. You see, the man who hurtled that fridge out of the window was just as guilty as the man inside the fridge. And just such a person is actually the focus of this passage. A few weeks ago, John introduced a series of studies in the book of Romans by taking chapter 1 a really difficult chapter, a chapter that deals with issues which are not popular in 21st century modern Britain. 
It talks about God's wrath, God's righteous anger. There are people that do not like that topic. There are Christians that do not like that topic because it seems to go against the grain of their understanding of who God is. A God of love. It speaks about the dangers of creating gods of our imagination. Deciding what we think God ought to be like. Having our own particular worldview, which is in complete contrast to the way God reveals himself in the scriptures. And then, of course, at the end of that chapter, it talks about the very difficult subject, which is often raised in the whole debate over homosexual activity, where Paul condemns it as acts of depravity. A difficult passage. Thank you, John, for volunteering to take that on. The pagan Gentiles, he has said, have suppressed the knowledge of God and have reaped the consequences. Now, when you come to the end of chapter 1, if you've really thought about it, there's an important question that many people ask but is not answered. And the question is this, what about good people? What about people who don't manifest the kind of depraved behavior that Paul describes in chapter 1? What about the moral people, those that have a moral compass, that those who seek to live a good and upright life, those people who aren't the murderers, they aren't child abusers, they aren't pedophiles, they're not promiscuous, they're not adulterers, where do they fit in? So many people will say, well, yeah, I agree with Paul's condemnation of those that act in a seriously sinful way. But what about people like me? You know, I live a morally upright life. I surely won't face the same kind of condemnation and judgment as these other people that are being described. I've been baptised. I go to church. I keep the rules. I try to do what's right. Surely I'm not going to be judged in the same way. God would never do that to me. I mean, of course, I've been a good person. Paul addresses that kind of person who may be having those sort of thoughts. Whoever you may be, he says... If you pass judgment on someone else, don't assume that you are without fault yourself. You're just as guilty. And you will face judgment in the same way as everyone else. And so this particular passage is all about judgment. It's another difficult chapter thank you John for giving me this one you know it's often said that preaching is all about comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable well this sermon is in the kind of latter category it's a challenge to all of us to think about our own attitude and to face up to the facts that we too 
will face judgment. So what does it say about the judgments of God? Well, it says, first of all, very clearly, that none of us will escape God's judgment. You know, it's human nature, isn't it, to be critical of everybody else, but not ourselves. Can you identify with that? We find fault with other people. And we don't accept excuses from other people when they go wrong, but we are very quick to offer excuses for our own conduct. The man in the story talking to St. Peter, explain yourself. Well, I was just trying to save my marriage, trying to justify his action. It's an age-old problem. You can go right back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. Adam was challenged. Explain yourself. Well, it was the woman's fault. Okay, Eve, explain yourself. It was the serpent's fault. And Jesus himself, challenging the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, says, you know, the problem with you guys is that you're so, so intent on trying to get that little speck of dust out of the eye of other people. Picking up their little faults. But you don't take account of the fact that in your own eye, there is a huge plank of wood. We condemn others, but we're not so easy and ready to recognize our own faults. You know, it's a bit of a cliche, but I'll mention it anyway. How many of us in our working life have made use of our bosses, our firms, equipment, property, whatever, for our own personal use and just written it off as a perk of the job. We are obviously aware of right and wrong. We are obviously aware of that God's standard of truth, which Paul talks about in verse 2. We apply it to other people. So what excuse will we ever be able to offer if and when God applies those same standards to us in the same way that we apply them to other people? We cannot be hypocritical. We cannot apply double standards. There is a day coming when we will face the judgment seat of Christ. But secondly... We will be judged fairly. On what basis will that judgment take place? Well, Paul says in verse 6 that it will be on the basis of our deeds, our actions. And that's consistent with other parts of the Bible. In Matthew, Jesus says, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. He's speaking at that great time when he will come again in judgment upon this world. And he says, the Son of Man will reward every man according to his works. Same concept. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or worthless. We will be judged on the basis of what we do, 
in this life. So coming back to this second chapter of Romans, the primary thrust here is that God does not judge us on the basis of our profession. Oh, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I do what I can. He doesn't judge us on the basis of our heritage or our upbringing. I was brought up in a Christian family. I was taken to church ever since I was a baby. He doesn't judge us on the basis of our identification with the church. I've served in all kinds of areas in church life. I've done this. I've done that. He judges us on the basis of the product of our lives. Now you might be thinking, Chris, what are you saying? Isn't this salvation by works? The answer to that is, no, it isn't. I'm not talking about that because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that you can be saved by your works. The Bible teaches just the opposite. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible never teaches salvation by works. Paul is not here talking about salvation. That comes in chapter 3. And I shall have the great pleasure and joy of preaching on that in two weeks' time. John, thank you for giving me that passage. Fantastic. He's talking here about judgment. He's talking about judgment. Payment will be made for what is due. To each person, this is personal, this is individual, this is not other people, this is you as an individual. It will be based upon according to what he has done. The record of your life will be opened. Judgment is on the basis of works. The Bible tells us that on that day the books will be opened, literally, metaphorically, who knows. But there will be a page, there will be a, a section with your name on it. Chris Newton, two columns, debit and credit. On the credit, hopefully there will be a good number of items. But when it comes to the debit column, there will be a mass of items. If you look at it in the way of a scales, you know, the credit will go into one pan of the scales and it will go down and down and you'll smile and you'll think, great, great, good. And then God will say, oh yeah, but look what's on the debit side. Bang, it will go the other way. Because no matter how good you are, the fact is that the bad outweighs the good. Always. And that is the way God will judge us. The standard of judgment is universal and fair for all people. But then thirdly, we will be judged impartially. God doesn't show favoritism. When God goes about judging people, he will do it absolutely without favoring any one individual. And he deals fairly with everyone in according to the light or the knowledge that they have had. I'll say that again because it's important to understand this passage. God deals fairly with everyone according to the light or to the knowledge that they have received. And Paul develops that point in relation to the law of Moses. There's a fundamental difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews have received the law of Moses. That has been revealed to them. 
the Gentiles do not have that law. They've never had that revealed to them. And what Paul is saying is, if you don't have the law, if you're a Gentile, be sure of this, you will be judged impartially as one who didn't have the law. If you have the law, you Jewish people, be assured of this, you will be judged as a person who has that revelation. God will be utterly and absolutely fair and impartial. Now, you know, if you think about that, that really throws up the age-old question. What about those who have never heard about the gospel? Never heard about Jesus? Those people that Eric, you know, referred to in that work presentation. The unreached people of this world. If they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, will God hold them responsible? Well, let's find out. Verse 12. It says there, people without the law shall also, what's the next word? Perish. Even though people have never heard, they do not have the revelation of God, either through the law or through the gospel, they still face judgment and condemnation. Now you might say, well, how is that fair? Well, let's find out the answer. Verse 14. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. Now, what is Paul saying there? Simply put, he's saying this, that you do not have to have the written law to be held responsible. Bringing it up into our context, you do not have to have heard about Jesus to be held responsible for your actions. Because you have a law within you. Go back to chapter 1 and pick up at the thought from verse 18 where Paul says, you know, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has made it plain to them. How? Since the foundation or since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are what without excuse. And so from chapter 1 we learn the first reason why the heathen are lost. It's about creation. They can look around them and know that there is a God because in creation God has revealed himself they can look around them and perceive that God is this supernatural being who is more powerful than any being known to them 
And so they are held responsible because they hold that knowledge and yet suppress it and act wickedly. That was the whole sense of chapter 1. But there is a second reason, and it's conduct. They're judged fairly because their conduct proves that they have this inner law, which is part of their human makeup. Even those who have never heard of Jesus have a moral code by which they live, by which they are expected to live. You don't have to know about Jesus to realize that you have a responsibility to honor your elders and your parents. You do not have to know about Jesus to know that there is a responsibility to love your wife or your husband. You do not have to know about Jesus to know that you must care for your children or for your parents. You do not have to know about Jesus to know that it is wrong to take the life of another person do not have to know about Jesus to know that you have a responsibility to care for the sick, to care for the hungry, to care for the destitute. You do not have to know about Jesus to realize that it's important that justice must be done and be seen to be done. All these things reveal that inner internal human code of morality and ethics that is built into every human being. That is the law that they have themselves. They know what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. And if they fail, then they are guilty of wrong behavior. And they will be without excuse and face God's judgment, condemnation, and perish. And the third reason, which really follows on from that, is conscience. That's part of verse 15. These people not only reveal the fact that they have a law within themselves by their conduct when they do naturally the things that are required of them, but they also reveal the law of God written in their hearts and their conscience when that conscience functions, testifying against their behavior. There is a conscience in each one of us. We know that, don't we? We know those thoughts that go through our mind when we do something which we know are wrong. It's like when you cheat. You live in constant fear of being found out. Why was that man hiding in the fridge? Because he knew that what he was doing was wrong and he didn't want to get caught. So in reality, there really is no distinction between those who have heard about Jesus and those who haven't, since the requirements of the law are written both in the law of Moses, but also in our own hearts. All mankind will be judged fairly by God, depending on their particular code of conduct, either that external written code or that internal written code of conscience, both of which point in the same direction, guilty. Guilty as charged. So God will judge in accordance with the knowledge that is given us. If it's a written code, judgment. If it's an unwritten code, an internal code, judgment. But I don't want to end there, because... 
really the question of what happens to those who have never heard is in a sense a bit of a red herring. That is not the key question that I want to leave you with this morning. The key question that I want you to be asking yourselves this morning is this. Not what will happen to others when I die. But what will happen to me? What will happen to you? Let me go back to verses 4 to 5. Where Paul says this. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? His forbearance, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. What he's saying is this, look, God has been good to you. Just remember that. God has been good to you and his goodness, his patience, his long-suffering His putting up with all your problems, his tolerance of your behavior has a purpose. And that purpose is to give you time to reflect upon that and to turn to God in faith. If it doesn't lead you to repentance because of your hard, unconverted heart, you know what's happening? You're just storing up more and more of God's righteous anger. More and more is being put on the debit column of your life. There is more and more that will be put in that other balance that will outweigh any good that you may have done. And that wrath will ultimately break loose in the final judgment. You cannot avoid it. The goodness of God is designed to lead us to repentance. It's designed to cause us to turn from sin to him. It's designed to make us thankful that God did not pour out his judgment upon us the very first moment we broke God's law. You see, God's goodness and God's patience cause us to repentance and to thankful hearts and yet even now you may be amongst those people that have never responded to God's love demonstrated in his patience towards you you know you can ignore God's mercy now and what will happen well be sure of this you will receive a righteous fair impartial judgment in the future or you can come in repentance to God and turn to Christ on the basis of what he has accomplished come back in two weeks time chapter three turn to Christ and receive his forgiveness the choice is yours let's pray Father, in your mercy, speak to us again. In an act of patience, give us once more that opportunity 
that each one need needs to turn again to you in repentance and in trust in the merciful God Lord speak to our hearts we pray in Jesus name Amen we're going to sing a